G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Jesus doesn't act like this in any other place in Scripture. What caused him to say, Father, is there a plan B? Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff is preaching from Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, the account of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. His message is called, Jesus Paid the Price. Isn't that the truth about our lives when we go into the dark gardens, that it's not so much what we're, what's going on, that there's a feeling that, where are you, God? You're all powerful. We know you could do something. Nothing is greater than you. We know you're all loving. You said you'd never leave us or forsake us. So what's going on? And we try to ask the question, what's in play here? What's happening? This is Today with Jeff Vines. So glad you're here. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Follow along in your Bible, man. This is one of those incredible passages. Let's get into this. Matthew 26, 36. I'll get there just in a second. Can you repeat after me, unless you're not a sanguine? Some people hate, re- they hate it when the pastor does that. So if you'd hate it, don't do it. How's that? Equal opportunity church. But if you don't mind, and you're, you love to have your voice heard, Say this after me. Say, I want to be like Jesus. Say it again. Okay. I want to be like Jesus. Say, I want to face my fears like Jesus faced his fears. With peace and poise. That's how I want to live my life. Okay, let me give you an example of Christ, peace, and poise, okay? Here we are. Matthew 26, 36, Jesus went to his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so we're talking about James and John here, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, five years ago, I would not have understood that language, But having suffered anxiety disorder for three years, I know exactly what the Greek means here now. He says, I am so overwhelmed with anxiety, I feel like I'm about to die. The Bible says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now, Luke 22, verse 44 tells us a little bit more about this episode when he says, and being in anguish, this is a reference to Jesus, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So if you want to be like Jesus, when you face the adversity of your life, you'll do so with anger and anguish and horror and shock, right? What is it that Jesus saw in the garden that overwhelmed him to such a degree that he thought he was going to die. 
Jesus doesn't act like this in any other place in Scripture. What caused him to say, Father, you know what? When we got together for the Trinity board meeting, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we decided that I drew the short straw and I would be the one of the Godhead that would go down and die for the sins of man. You know, is there a plan B? Is there another way to do this? What caused the Son of God to stagger? Because in reality, you know, I've been to Bible college and seminary. History is inundated with Christ's followers who died courageously. When it came time for them to die, incredible courage. If you go to Oxford, England today, you'll see a statue, many statues of men and women who were burned at the stake, who had these courageous words just as they were about to die. I think of the end of the Spear movie about the life of Jim Elliott and four other Wheaton grads who were at the top of their class, man. They were great entrepreneurs. They were going to go and make their mark on the world. And God called them to go instead to the jungles of South America and take the gospel to an unreached people group. So they learned the language. They took their families, their wives, their kids. They learned the local language. They began flying over the village and dropping gifts so that the villagers would know they were coming in peace. And then the day came, they landed the plane in the opening and the villagers came out and speared all five of them to death. And Jim Elliot, as he held the spear, said the words he had memorized to the tribal chief, I am your friend. And in his journal, we found later that they expected to die. They assumed that they would probably give their lives for the cause of Christ and Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, went back to the same village, to the same people. Because of Jim Elliot's word, they received his wife. And beginning with the chief, they all became Christ followers. The courage, though, with which Jim Elliot and his four friends died. And the story happens again and again. And you might say, well, Jesus did the same thing. He said, not your will, but mine be done. But only after three times of saying, I don't want this. Let this cup pass for me. Is there another way? What is it that overwhelmed him so much? You say, well, it was the crucifixion. Well, no, he, he spoke about his impending death numerous times with the disciples. Unless I be lifted up, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He said, the day's coming where I'll be handed over to sinful men. Something else that was so amazing and so powerful and so astonishing that it pushed him into the dust. What was it? Now, I don't know if you know this, but you're in church right now. I tell you this because all weekend, it's been very, very disruptive. I'm not sure why. Uh, well, I do know why. I'm going to tell you that in a moment. For some reason, there's just been mass hysteria. People getting up, people getting the cell phones going. And you know why? Because anytime you bring a message like this, there is someone else trying to stop it. So I just want you to be aware from the get-go. All kinds of thoughts will come into your mind to distract you from this. Because it's a life-changing thing. Let me tell you what Jesus is facing. You and I know that because of our sin, we're separated legally from God. He is totally holy and pure and righteous, and we're not. If you haven't made your peace with that yet, then that's another sermon. And because of that, there's a legal separation between us and God. He's holy, we're not. Our sin creates a gap, a judicial gap, a justice gap. 
Well, the nature of God requires him to separate himself from all known sin. What we don't talk about is not only is there a judicial gap, there is an existential one. We feel it. We feel that we are not close to God, that he's far away, that he is distant. And it's because of our sin. It's the same experience Adam and Eve had in the garden after they'd sinned against God. Lost, naked, ashamed. Now, my friend Clive Raharu, he's in this service. He sits over here in this funny looking polo shirt. Let's say Clive and I have been, Clive and I have been friends for too long. 15, 20 years, I don't know. Let's say all of a sudden I heard that Clive said, hey, Jeff, I've been meaning to tell you that golf is a sissy game and that your wife is ugly and your children are stupid. I've, I've just been winning. Let's say that I heard he said that. Now, that's going to create a gap between us, right? Because he has offended or sinned against me. And the longer we go without confronting that issue, the greater the gap. So there's not only a judicial gap But there's also an existential one that our sin creates. David experienced the same thing. He was referred to as a friend of God. David was a man that was after God's own heart, rather. Talking about Abraham. And yet when he sinned with Bathsheba and did not confess his sin, what did he write? He said this in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David said, when I didn't confront my sin, there was this existential gap between God and me and I couldn't feel his presence. He was distant. And no matter how you try to avoid it, it's so deep, you know it. Now, if that is true, stay with me. If there is a judicial gap between us and God, and if there's an existential gap, a feeling, an emotional gap between us and God because of our sin, that would mean that alternatively, the opposite is true, right? If there's no sin in your life, there'd be no gap between you and God. You would know him like no one else. The intimacy and closeness that you would experience with God because of lack of a gap would be unparalleled. Now think about this for a moment. When I was in my 20s, suddenly everybody in their 20s said, huh? When I was in my 20s, and it doesn't seem that long ago, folks, (laughs) every time I look in the mirror, I don't know that I'm 52 until I look in the mirror, and then I know you're 52, man. You're falling apart. (laughs) So I remember on one occasion, I was facing this temptation, the kind of temptations that you face in your 20s, right? And before I tell you this story, make sure, please don't put me on a pedestal. I'll only tell you the success stories, remember? Okay. All right. And I knew I was about to face this temptation that really could impact the trajectory of my life. That's what we don't know when the tempter comes. We think that this decision won't matter much. Call it a vision of God or an anointing or whatever, but I could see clearly that if I failed in this one particular area, that it could change the direction of my life. But I didn't trust myself to be able to overcome it. When the temptation came, I did. I remember the following weekend, I felt so close to God. I can still remember it like it's yesterday. That was because I was so proud of what I had done. No, I realized that the only way I could overcome that temptation was that the Spirit of God enabled me to do something ordinarily I could not do. And I felt close to God. And I worshiped like I'd never worshiped before, like some of you worshiped this weekend. I could just sense his presence. There was an anointing. There was something special that had happened. 
The existential gap that I usually feel had been closed. Uh, please don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about the objective closeness that comes with those who are in Christ. In Romans 8, we're told there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So judicially, that gap has been closed. And no matter how you feel, the reality is God is close to you. But there's also an existential gap, a feeling, an emotion that overcomes you when you're not walking with God. But now imagine you're Jesus, which will be hard to do. Perfect relationship. Constant, full-on intimacy with the Father because there was no sin in his life. Therefore, there was never a gap. Therefore, Jesus experiences the love and joy of the Father in ways we will never know. However, what causes him to stumble in the garden? He experiences something that he was not accustomed to, that he had no idea in his humanity what this was like. He turns to God for help and God is not there. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Pastor Jeff's message is Jesus paid the price, explaining just how much Jesus loved us to choose the cross. Let's continue now. Now, Let me help you put this in perspective. Uh, Patrick Morley wrote a book called Man in the Mirror, and he writes about four fishermen that go to Alaska, and they are fishing for salmon, and they catch the mother load. They hit the jackpot. And so they take all the salmon that they've caught, they put it in the pontoon plane, And they take off seconds into the flight. The pilot realized that one of the pontoons had filled with water as it was idling in the bay. It veers to the left and crashes down into the icy waters of the Alaskan Bay. A long way from shore, the men get out and they're trying to swim, but they're swimming against the current. Three of them make it. They look back into the icy waters and they see Dr. Phil Littleford, who was strong enough to swim to safety, but chose not to because his 12-year-old son, Mark, couldn't swim to safety, and he held them as they both drowned. Now, think about, I want you to imagine this scene for a moment. Let's say Dr. Littleford uh, catches uh, a plank of some sort and is able to stay afloat, and his 12-year-old son swims over and reaches out his hand to daddy, save me, and imagine his daddy turning his face and leaving him to drown. Which would be worse for the son, the fear of drowning or the pain of abandonment by somebody he trusted? Which would be worse? The saints of the past died with courage because they died in the presence of God and God was with them. When Jesus dies, he dies with the father's abandonment. Do you understand what this is? Greater than the crucifixion, Jesus was experiencing something that he had never experienced before. Isn't that the truth about our lives when we go into the dark gardens? That it's not so much what we're, what's going on, that there's a feeling that where are you, God? You're all powerful. We know you could do something. Nothing is greater than you. We know you're all loving. You said you'd never leave us or forsake us. So what's going on? And we try to ask the question, what's in play here? What's happening? As Jesus moves into the garden to pray, he gets a foretaste of, uh, about what's to happen to him on the cross. He turns to the Father, the Father turns his face away. Listen to Bill Lane's commentary on Mark. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety out of which the prayer for the cup springs is not an expression of fear before dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering. It is rather the horror of one who lives wholly for the Father, who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. You know what hell is, right? Get out of your mind this fiery dark pit and think more ultimately hell is separation from God. 
Because when you're separated ultimately from God, there is no good things. Now, hold on a second. Remember, we're doing the theology now. And if you'll just be patient with the high theology, it'll mean a lot to you at the end. Here's the question that follows. Why is God doing this to Jesus now? Why not wait till the cross? He's going to do it on the cross too, because Jesus is going to yell out, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why start it in the garden? And here's why. Because in the garden, Jesus is alone. The disciples are asleep. The guards aren't there. Once Jesus is nailed to the cross, there's really no escape. Once the wrath comes on you on the cross, there's nothing you can do about it. But in the garden, Jesus still has a choice. He's got a choice to make. And he can walk away. This is important because when Jesus was baptized, you remember a voice came from heaven and said what? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Why did God say that? Because when Jesus was baptized, he accepted officially the role of Messiahship. He died to himself and said, I'm going to live for the father, even if it means my death. And so in the garden, Jesus has a choice to make, save himself and disobey the father or lose himself and obey the father and save you and me. Jesus, what he did in the garden, he did willingly. Nobody forced him to do it. It was a choice that he had to make. That's why he says in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. He's saying the father's commanded me to be the one who gives my life that you might be saved. And when he marks in the garden, God gives him a foretaste and God basically says to Jesus, here's the cup you're about to drink. This is the wrath you're about to face. This is the furnace into which you're about to be burned. Are you willing to do it? There's no other way. They perish or you perish. Is your love for me and your love for people so great that you're willing to experience all the pain and the suffering you're about to experience, even abandonment from your own father for the sake of the joy that is set before you? Now stay with me. This is important. It's not only separation, something Jesus would have never experienced and he staggers at it. He turns to God and God turns his face away and he's never been in this position before. But there's something else. Look at verse 39, going a little farther. He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Three times he says, no, let's do it another way. What's the cup? The cup always represents judgment. In the Old Testament, whenever the prophets are talking about the cup, they're referring to divine judgment, God's judicial judgment, punishment, and wrath on human evil. Now, Go back to the story of the Alaskan Bay. Let's say that Dr. Littleford finds a plank and his little boy, 12-year-old Mark, swims over. Daddy, help. And his dad turns his face away and starts to paddle away. But then, let's say the father turns back, paddles back over, and takes the son's head and pushes it under the water until he drowns. That's the gospel. Did you know that? Jesus suffers the wrath of God on the cross so that you and I will never have to. That's the core of what the gospel means. Because on the cross, the apostle Paul knew people would ask an explanation. Why the cross? Why did God, why is this happening? And in verse 26 of Romans 3, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. What's he saying? On the cross, you see the justice of God, the judicial wrath of God against all sin demonstrated. But instead of pouring his wrath out on you, he pours it out on his own son. Therefore, he's not only the one who is just, but he's the one who justifies. That is the gospel. And it's brilliant 
Because you see both justice and you see love. This is Today with Jeff Vines. That's all we have time for, but we'll continue to explore the cost of the crucifixion next time in Jesus Paid the Price. You can actually look at these gardens, these dark gardens of your lives as time to let your light shine. You may not know why, but you know who, that He can be trusted, that He's faithful. He will never abandon you. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.